So, as many of you know, I'm in the middle of teaching the second month of the two-month course right now. So I'd like to start by doing a little guided meditation. You don't have to change your posture or anything. Just shut your eyes for a moment. And I just want to guide you for a second. And I just want you to imagine that, think about whatever you did today. Maybe you were out in the park or maybe you were working in your garden or you were walking by the water or you were, maybe you went to a pool and swam or maybe you went to a playground with some children. But instead of that, on this really beautiful day today, you spent the whole day sitting and walking. In other words, doing sitting meditation and walking meditation. And you got up, if you weren't up already, the bell rang at about 5 this morning and you started meditating by 5.30 and you just alternated sitting and walking all day and you had a meal or two or three, probably just having the, oh yeah, the third meal. And then imagine, not only did you do this today, but yesterday with whatever you did no you didn't do that yesterday you didn't do some work or meet with friends or go have brunch or see a movie last night you sat and you walked you sat and you walked and you sat and you walked all day just kind of feel into it just like we just sat for the last 45 minutes, you, you had been doing that all day, sitting and walking meditation. And not only did you do it yesterday and today, all weekend, you did it all week. So remember you were at work all week, you were 9 to 5 or whatever your work schedule is, being on public transit or driving your car, riding your bike or and whatever you did in the evenings reading or more work or you were at school this week or whatever it was. You didn't do any of that. You just sat and walked and sat and walked and sat and walked. And not only did you do it all week, you've done it for the last two weeks. So even if you can't remember what you did two weeks ago, now you know. You were you were sitting, you were walking, you were sitting and you were walking. And for so that's about two thirds of you have been doing it for about two weeks. And for the other third, you've been there for not just for March, you were there for February. You can't even remember February at all. But you know that what you've been doing all of February was sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking and eating and, you know, and then there were Dharma talks each night, some instruction in the morning. You met with teachers every few days. Okay, that's your little guided meditation. So I just wanted to give you a little sense of what people have been doing up at Spirit Rock for the past 
six weeks for about a third of them and for the other two-thirds for the last two weeks. They haven't been doing much, right? They've been sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And so what it, why? Why would people do this? Why would people take their precious time, right? And everybody's busy, right? Just like you know you're busy, they're, they're also busy. But somehow they've managed to carve out this time because they value what happens there. Even if they don't know what happens there, because some people are doing this for the first time. And they're practicing in a very intensive way. It's a very intensive form of practice, this retreat. This is the longest retreat we teach at Spirit Rock, the two-month course. And at, at our sister center on the East Coast, they do a three-month course. Some people who really get the bug, we could say, they do the three-month course, which is from September to the mid-December. Then they come back and they take six weeks off and then they come do another two months. And of course, some people decide to go sit in a more hermitage style and sit for five months straight or six months or a year or more, actually. And so I just want to speak a little bit to what happens on retreat. What, there, there are a number of different kinds of retreats that people have. A number of different flavors of experience that people have. Or, yeah. So one is that for some people, especially the newer people, they're really learning the skill and art of meditation. Like they've done some meditation, they've been meditating every day a bit and they've come to sitting groups and maybe they've done a weekend or five days or ten days and now they're really, they're going to do a month. They're coming for the month of March. And, um, and at the beginning it's really all about how do you, how do you navigate simply being with yourself for a month? Uh, um, what's her name? I can't remember her name. Um, I've got it written down somewhere. Annie Lamott, the writer, said, she said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I, I don't want to go there alone. <laughs> you know, just especially if you've never considered contemplated this, think about what it would be like to be with yourself for a month. Because even though, remember, you know, even though there's other people there and there's teachers there, mostly you're just being with your direct experience moment by moment by moment on Sunday, Saturday, the week, two weeks, four, three weeks, four weeks. And so one of, one of the things people are learning is how to do that. Now, not, not just how to do it, but how to do it skillfully. How to do it so that um, being with oneself develops the heart and mind in a certain way. And that is the way of mindfulness. And this is... Um, the same principles one might learn 
at a five-week class here or at a day long and that one applies during one's daily meditation or when you come here. But uh, um, like any intensive practice, whether it's an intensive sport or any kind of way of immersing oneself intensely, you start to get the extremes of experience. You get the highs and you get the lows and you, you learn a lot and then you feel like you don't know what you're doing at all and then you refine your ground and you, and you learn how to fine-tune within that. Um, you know, if you're a dancer or you're, maybe yoga is a good good metaphor. Like if you're learning yoga, you know, first you learn these postures and they're kind of uncomfortable but it feels okay and then, but if you go and do yoga, start doing yoga every day, it, they start to get a little more fluid and easier and then if you decide to go, you know, to some yoga ashram and practice yoga, well then it gets more difficult actually. You, you know a little bit but you don't know how to really fully enter yet. And so part of what happens for many people who this length of retreat is new for is they're learning how to navigate the terrain, the ups and downs and the, um, the highs that come. Like people, a lot of opening happens on retreat. A lot of insight or, or uh, states of consciousness that are really beautiful, very delicious. And then they go away. And people think, oh, I've lost it. I had it. And I've lost it. And how can I get it again? And, and so they start to learn that there's something, um, that there's a mastery and one can continue to develop the capacity to um, 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 realize states of well-being, but that there's an even bigger goal than that. There's a goal of a sense of uh, happiness or contentment that's not so much based on the ups and downs. But the ups and downs have their place and even the big openings are, are wonderful. And so people learn mastery, but they also learn there's no control. Mastery does not mean control. Mastery is like learning how to surf. You start to learn how to use the board and your feet and the wave and all the, all the variables that are in play and you, and you get some mastery over it. But when the big wave comes, you can't control it. You can't control what happens. You get to play with it. You get to interact and keep learning as you interact. So people get to make a lot of mistakes and not know how to practice. Or, or things happen and they, like maybe somebody's going along and they're going along and it's going good and it's settling and they feel quiet and the mind's starting to quiet. And then there's a huge eruption that they didn't expect. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's a grief they thought, oh, they didn't, it was done. It was from five years ago. And it was, maybe they lost the relationship, we could say. And then, and then all of a sudden they're, they're in the middle of it and they're thinking, oh no, I'm supposed to be in the present moment and they're trying to get rid of it. 
And then they realize that part of what, of what gets learned is how to be non-contentious with all of our experience. How to be non-contentious with experience. This is really one of the arts of the mastery of being with yourself. If you're contentious with your experience, you will suffer. It, it's painful. Because your experience will, will, will keep pushing it on you. And you can't get rid of it. Oh, I don't want this grief. I don't, want, I don't care about that person anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't want to feel this. That's dukkha. And so people get to study dukkha by seeing what works and what doesn't work. And then seeing, oh, the, the grief is here. It's not up to us. We're not in control of what shows itself. But we can respond. And we can learn to respond more and more skillfully. And so then learning how to um, be non-contentious with the grief means to be open to it. And to um, let it move through us in an unheld way. And the reason why we want to learn this, this uh, art is because then the life that's there doesn't have to be held anymore then that life can live and live so much that it, it self-liberates at some point. The grief actually dissolves or goes or resolves and it's not like we stop it and it's not like we resolve it logically. It's more it's like we let it happen until it plays itself out. And maybe that'll include tears and a few days of feeling bereft and then at some point it's like, oh, it's gone. And then part of the art is how to stay present after the wave has crested and broken. Because it's, it, it's actually, if you've had grief on retreat for a few days, or it could be anger or whatever it could, might be, it's so compelling that when it ends, people start to lose their balance. Right? It's like, oh, it's so calm, we're not in balance anymore. We need the intensity. And we're not, and then, and so then, part of the mastery is to learn how to stay present when things are not intense. And actually, as things settle and get quieter, part of the art and the skill is to learn how to let one's mindfulness refine with one's heart and mind and body. Like maybe part of what happens on retreat is people will have a certain amount of body dukkha. Pain will come. Pains, some of which maybe they expected. Oh, my knees hurt when I sit on a cushion or my back hurts. But sometimes pains come and, and they don't even make any sense. Somebody I know once had a pain in the shin come. Very intense pain. And they're sitting with it for a number of days, being mindful of it. And of course, this is an art. How to be non-contentious with physical pain, similar to non-contentious with emotional pain. And, and he was sitting with it and sitting with it and he couldn't, and it was there and it was throbbing and hurting and he was noting it and staying present and being open to it and breathing with it and relaxing with it, doing all the skillful means, but it wouldn't stop. <laughs> and, he, and then he was also being mindful of the aversion of wanting it to go away. And then at some point the aversion went away and he just got present with the pain. 
And all of a sudden he had a memory. And the memory came of walking into one of those garden fixtures, you know, that are, you know, sticking out of the ground when he was a kid. You know, just bam, hitting the garden fixture with his shin. And he had the memory and the pain went away. Boom. Done. Now what's that? Right? <laughs> now what is that? And so some strange things happen on retreat. The whole idea of who and what we are starts to get challenged of what's happening here. Part of the challenge that'll happen is some people and maybe more people who've been, let's say people who've done this length of retreat once or twice or three times already. And so they come in, they have this, a lot of skill already and they've, a lot of stuff has worked through and maybe they haven't accumulated too much new karma. And so they go into retreat and they start to collect with the body and the breathing and they get composed and concentrated and it's very pleasant and it's really nice and they're Heart, there's not a lot of heart pain, not a lot of heartache, not a lot of drama or turbulence. Or, and their mind's actually, you know, it thinks it's, you know, doing what minds do. Papancha, right? Cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. Chattering away. But it, it starts to get quiet. And so then the refinement is to refine to the quiet, to, let, to, to learning the art of actually being with ourselves when there's not a lot of drama when there's not a lot of intensity in, in the usual way. It's actually intense, but it's intense in a more subtle or sublime way. And so the art is to begin to tune and be sensitive to that. And that can bring up all kinds of different things. Uh, people come in and sometimes... I actually brought some notes from retreat. Let me see if I can find them. Oh, yeah. Now, these are just things I'm supposed to do on retreat. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> so, sometimes there'll be this refinement, this quietness. Somebody I know who's practiced many, many, many years, and she's on this retreat, and she's here for two months and she's in a beautiful beautiful place when she comes in it, the teacher gets darshan do you know darshan darshan is when the guru blesses you you know and you get this transmission when she walks in that it's like the whole space is different in the in the interview room because of her presence and her consciousness and what's really beautiful she doesn't have a clue. I mean, she has a clue that it's gotten quiet and peaceful and content and, and delicious in this sublime way. She doesn't really have a clue about how radiant it is, really. And she's done a lot of retreat, and so she, she had the skills, and she's mature and doesn't have a lot of um, her sila, is also very good. Sila meaning her virtue or her, her world that she lives in 
is a world that she hasn't created a lot of dissonance. She's not in contention with her, the people in her world. And, and it's part of the um, uh, area of Dharma that helps support the deepening of meditation. It's not, you can't, it's hard to have a really good meditation if you spent the day, you know, like stealing and killing. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work so well. And, and even for all of us, it's very helpful. The more in harmony we are with our families or our world or our whatever, our work or our, the people we come, then it's easier to meditate. We're not having those repetitive, oh, you know, I should have said or they said and I'm going to. And, they, and we all have them and everybody has some of it. But... So she came in, and at a certain point, the, the quiet or the calm gets so refined that the whole sense of self that we've known ourselves, taken ourselves to be, starts to loosen its grip. It starts to become more pliable, or more malleable, or more permeable. And the whole sense of who we are as an entity or as an individual, as a separate thing, loses its preeminence. And it doesn't mean one disappears, but the whole sense of self, it, it just softens and kind of loses its edges and its, its sharp distinctions. And there's just a kind of presence here, and the presence is characterized by um, uh, a sense of happiness and a sense of joy and a sense of um, gratitude or a sense of appreciation or a sense of uh, quiet or stillness or, or um, non-separateness with things, with the nature or with the other people. And, and at times it brings, oddly enough, it'll bring a certain kind of dharma tears and she wrote about this. She said, so many more Dharma tears flowing freely, full of love, full of love, of sadness, of forgiveness, of beauty, of tenderness. This morning it was as though the 10,000 sorrows revealed themselves to me, showing the condition of our humanity, so sad and so beautiful at the same time. And no more blame for all the suffering. And then deep peace, a true gift, and the body and breath became one. What is happening to this once solid form? It was so wondrous, yet somehow comforting and known. How to say all this? Metta. And you can, I hope you just feel a little of the transmission of the state of heart and mind that would write a note like this. And, and so it's really, I think maybe surfing is the best, is the best, or open water swimming is the best metaphor because this will come and maybe then a big wave will come and she'll get thrown a little for a day or two, a little bit, but not horribly or sometimes really a big wave will come somebody I know who I've known many years who's both student and a friend colleague who's sitting the retreat and um, 
and um, he's six weeks sitting and walking and very deep in the retreat and very quiet and then he got thrown boom got turned upside down and had a tremendous all of a sudden a tremendous amount of fear a lot of fear and grabbed me one night you know late at night saying I need to talk to you afraid you can see it it's it was serious fear and we we worked with it we worked with doing a little what's called the stabilizing meditation where you feel different parts of the body you you move the the mind through different parts of the body feeling the touch points and let, let's do it for a second I'll show you so just in case you ever have a lot of fear here's the stabilizing meditation and if you're on the ground it's fine if you're on the chair good if your feet are flat or and then shut your eyes for a moment and feel your right just feel your right foot for a moment whatever it's touching and then feel your left foot for a moment whatever it's touching just the touch of it pressure, contact and then your, feel your right hand whatever it's touching and then feel your left hand whatever it's touching and then feel your rear end on the cushion or the bench or the chair and the touch of that and then feel your lips touching just the contact of your lips and then go back to your right foot now and feel your right foot again whatever it's touching and then your left foot Then your right hand. And your left hand. And then your rear end. And then the lips touching. So that, and you would continue to move through those touch points until the mind relaxed. And so for him, partly because he was in a very deep place, it took about four minutes, which is quick, right? So he's in a, he's in a lot of fear, and we do the touch point meditation, and he says, oh, okay, good. Yeah, I'm calming down. It's calming down. And he calmed down. And then we could talk about how to work with the fear. Because it was still there. It was still in his body. But he knew one way to work with it. Now he's in a very deep place. And there are certain stages in the meditative process 
where deep fear will come up. And they're in the, they're in the, the deep, some of the deepest stages. At a certain point, sometimes the emptiness of self will bring fear. It just will. We're so, we're so used to having the solid sense of self. We're so used to really seeing ourselves, thinking about ourselves in a certain way that when that starts to dissolve, for some people, sometimes, it'll bring fear. And it's even, there's written in the classical text, they talk about certain stages of insight, which begin with fear, and then have disgust, and then have terror, and then have what's called rolling up the mat. And rolling up the mat means, I've had it, I'm out of here. <laughs> he didn't hit that stage until about two days later. But he did. It was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. Da, da, da. And at that point, we did some other things. Partly we gave him the context. Oh, here's where you are. Not only here's where you are, people work very hard to get to this stage. <laughs> they don't know it at first. Everybody, right, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? It's the same with enlightenment. Everybody wants to get enlightened, but wait, I... I don't want to feel this. And that's why all the practice is so important. So we have as much composure, as much skill, and as much confidence and faith in ourself in the Dharma so we can go through difficult phases that will arise on retreat. And they, they do, and they will, and they're okay. That's really the great good news. I brought another note. Let's see. This is from a woman who had cancer, had some seizures from the medicine. She said at lunch, I got afraid and disoriented enough. I feared a seizure coming. Again, metta. So what she did was loving kindness practice. This is another antidote for fear. I don't know if you all know this loving kindness practice that we do, the metta practice, the Buddha gave it to a group of monks and nuns who were living in a forest and were scared by the spirits, the, the sprites and the demons that lived in that forest. And they wanted to leave the forest. And they came to him and said, you have to give us another place to practice. He said, no, no, I'll give you a practice so you can go back in the middle of where it's scary and you can deal with the fear. And it said that they went back and they did metta and then all the, you know, the spirit, the sprites and the demons stopped bothering them. And so she did metta, once again helped calm me. And then when you walked through the door to wash your di dish, I felt comfort, like a still forest pool. She's quoting from Ajahn Chah. Thank you so much. Then what came to me was one of your deep motivations. She was, she was working with Jack Cornfield, so I'm reading his note um, that she wrote to him. I, then what came to me was one of your deep motivations. Does this path have a heart? Does this path have a heart? If it does, it's good. If it does, it's good. If not, it is of no use to me. With my fear, I always looked outside for the path. Finally, I look inside for the path. Does this path have a heart? I had a good cry. It was so deeply reorienting, I felt grounded with gratitude, 
deep gratitude. Once again, vivid and beautiful. Once again, I bow to the Dharma. So part, and this is a natural part of any deep spiritual unfoldment, is that there's a descent. In the shamanistic world, they talk about a descent into the underworld in order to realize oneself. And the descent here is not, I I would put it a little differently, the descent is into who and what we are or who and what we've taken ourselves to be. And then coming face to face with the reality and discovering that we can find the truth here. Find the truth right where we sit. Find the Dharma within ourselves as she describes so beautifully. And um, for some people who are on this retreat for six weeks or a month, they're just doing loving kindness practice. They're not doing mindfulness. They're doing loving kindness. And one of my friends is on retreat and he's, he's doing loving kindness. And it's so fun to be around him. It's like a little love machine. <laughs> Because you just you wouldn't you just get around this this kind of radiance. It's different from the people who have gone into descent or the people in deep peace. It's a different. It's like this rosy kind of radiance, because all he's doing 24 hours a day is metta practice, is loving kindness practice. So he's doing loving kindness. First, you start for yourself and a benefactor and you switch and somebody who it's really easy to do loving kindness for and then yourself usually it's a little not as easy to do but you learn how to do it and so you're offering all these all your heart's well wishes for yourself and what happens is the heart starts to open actually let me be even more accurate sometimes first the heart closes or you see what blocks the heart's opening. You see what covers the heart. The aches or pains or hurts of a lifetime, really, will show themselves if they're still blocking the heart. So there's a process that happens, a purification of heart, just like the purification of mind happens. And actually, the purification of the body happens on retreat. And in the metta practice, so the purification means you'll see the opposite of the love at first. And then as you keep doing the metta practice, it begins to dissolve or go away or disappear, become permeable. And then the heart begins to radiate this kind of love and goodwill and good feeling, first for the benefactor or oneself, and then and then you'll start doing it for beloved persons, friends or or family who it's easy to do it for, or compatriots in some way. And then at some point you'll start doing it for a neutral person. You'll pick, like if you were to pick somebody in this room tonight who you don't know at all and have never even thought twice about and start offering them your love, that's the neutral person. And it's totally weird to do it, right? 
because you don't even know this person, you don't know who they are or what they're like. And all of a sudden you're offering, oh, may you be happy, may you be well, may your heart be filled with kindness and love, may you awaken, and you're, off and you're doing this, right, 24-7. And all of a sudden the neutral person comes around the corner and you see them, you're in love. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> you don't know the person at all. It's just like, wow. And you just, and then you can't wait to see them. And, <laughs> right? and you notice they've stopped be, being neutral now. Right? Or then it goes on. Then you start to do difficult people. And you, you want to start with somebody who's only a little difficult. Not like the worst person you hate, you know, or not some political figures I won't name or things like that. Although it's really good to do it for them, definitely, definitely, and for all. And then, and then you start, and then the 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 um, metta keeps expanding. After you've gone through these different beings, you start to do it in different directions to the to the north or to the south or to the east or the west or above and below, or different categories of beings because you want to start because the metta is boundless. The human heart is limitless. And you can, you can realize this. This is not just a nice metaphor. I, I wanna, this is not just an idea. It's an actuality. The human heart, you know, the, the heart of Christ or Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa, the heart that loves all beings, that's all of our hearts. That's not some special person. They may have realized it, but we can realize that also. And so then you start to do, maybe there's these different categories of beings, all beings in existence, or all breathing beings. May all breathing beings be happy. May all living beings be happy. May all male beings be happy. May all female beings be happy. May all, may all beings, neither male nor female, be happy. May all awakened beings be happy. May all seekers be happy. And, peaceful and safe and loving and awaken and may may all beings in the in the human in the in the heavenly realms the devas and the angels and the gods you know it's a it's an asian cosmology we're working with and then may all beings in the human realm be free and be happy and be joyous and be peaceful and be compassionate and may all beings in the lower in the animal realms and the lower realms be happy and free. And the, and the metta, and it's literally like you're just radiating 360 degrees in every direction, metta, loving kind. It's like you just become a, a heart. The heart is freed. So some people, that's all they're doing for a month or two months at a time. And then, at a certain, for certain people, the depth of freedom that comes is the fruit of what the Buddha taught. And so, at some point, they'll go through a series of experiences, a deepening and deepening of the sense of, um, uh, of clarity about the suffering of holding on to anything, 
about the absolutely impermanent nature of each arising moment. Not only is it, it, it it's so clear, it happening so fast that they can see each moment dissolving, 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 dissolving. And again, it's sometimes it's really challenging at first, and then they find their balance in that. And then, and then also that sense of selflessness. They, it's like people come in and they'll say, I, I look around and I can't, I can't even find a self. There's knowing, but there's nobody here who knows. There's experience, but there's nobody experiencing it. And it's weird to even talk about it this way. I don't even, I'm not even sure who's talking. And so these three, these three factors or characteristics of, of permanence and of suffering and of not-self start to uh, become very clear very, and they have a very powerful impact on the psyche as they clarify. And then at a certain point, the mind lets go. And that experience is indescribable. The Buddha would not describe that experience. He would point to it. He talked about it as release or as freedom or as, as the highest happiness. The highest happiness. When the mind lets go. So let's stop there. Please.